Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and I want to start by apologizing that the last two weeks you have missed our podcast. We've actually started a Worldview series, and two weeks in a row we have recorded it, and when I've gone to upload it, it has failed. Uh, so I've contacted uh, Podbean, which is who we use for uh, doing these podcasts. They've assured me that it should be fixed, and if you're listening to this right now, it has been fixed, so I hope so. Um, today I'll be uh, taking on the third in this series on worldviews with a look at naturalism. So naturalism is the belief that nature is all that exists, that there is no supernatural, that what you see is what you get. So we're going to look at five different questions and value statements about naturalism and we'll discuss and kind of contrast that a little bit to Christianity. So definitely uh, we're in the philosophy field of things today. Uh, you know, not as deeply theological or biblical, let's say, but I think it is something that's very important to understand better as many people around us, uh, they adhere to the worldview of naturalism, whether they realize it or not. So let's go into our discussion on naturalism now. Jump in. All right, so I want to start with a little discussion question and uh, pretty easy, but uh, you don't have to answer this out loud, but the question is, do you believe in miracles? And I don't mean like historically, I mean like today. And I wish I had done one of those little poll things where you could text in or something we could see. But do you believe in miracles? All right, and then I guess maybe to, to kind of zone in on it, do you believe people can be physically healed supernaturally by God? All right, so answer those questions for yourself. All right, so they did, uh, multiple polls have been done on this. Uh, Barna Group, which is a sort of a Christian polling group, they polled, it was around 1,100 people uh, in 2016. And what they found was is that 66% of people agreed, 34% of people disagreed. I saw another poll from, I think it was 2010, this was Pew Research, that said uh, 80% of people believed in miracles. So I think it depends on how you ask the question, and no poll is perfect, but... If you ask just in general, do you believe in miracles? 80% of people would say yes, this is United States, just a wide variety of people. If you get a little bit more down into it, do you believe that you can physically heal people supernaturally, that sort of question? Maybe fewer people would say yes to that. I don't know what your response to that was. But we look a little bit more into it, this is in that Barner Group study. What you'll see is when they ask, you could say you agree strongly or agree somewhat. That becomes the 66% that agree and then you have the ones that disagree somewhat, disagree strongly. I think what's interesting is what you'll see that generationally, as you might expect, the younger you are, the more likely you are to strongly disagree with this idea. So to strongly disagree that there's any sort of supernatural power or something that, that God is able to do in terms of healing people. Also, the more educated you are, the, more, or the less likely you are to agree strongly, which I think makes sense. Okay. And then you even look at faith segments, and it's kind of interesting. I won't spend a lot of time on this, uh, but depending on the faith segment, it makes a difference. Uh, ethnicity makes a difference. And so uh, if actually African-Americans would agree strongly, more likely that there are miracles. It's kind of interesting. And then what region of the United States you're in makes a difference. So if you're in the South, you're more likely to think that miracles exist or that God can heal people supernaturally. The reason I bring this up is, is, is that if you think that these topics are not worth your time or that they don't make a difference. So like if you're thinking like from a youth group standpoint, should we teach these sort of things? And if your answer is, nah, I don't think kids really care. I think what you'll see is, is that we're getting people who increasingly think that science has all the answers um, and that 
these issues are important. So from this uh, poll, I know this is kind of blurry, I just had to screenshot it off the internet. You can kind of see some answers of why people left the church along these same poll lines. And a lot of the answers you see are things that have to do with science and things like naturalism like we'll talk about. So uh, I don't believe anymore because I learned about evolution when I went away to college. Um, uh, rational thought makes religion go out the window. Religion has uh, no scientific or specific evidence for a creator. And, uh, and some other things too. All right, and so this is what William Lane Craig would say. He's a famous apologist, um, but he says, part of the challenge of getting American people to think about God is that they've become so used to God that they just take him for granted, and they never think to ask what the implications would be if God did not exist. As a result, they think that God is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether God exists or not. Okay, so with naturalism, the basic idea of it is, is that all that exists is what we see, okay? And so there is no supernatural. Of course, there is no chance for miracles. So even in a class where... All of us would say we believe in God. Some of us may not believe that people could be healed supernaturally, so it's like a little bit deeper level. But certainly if you're a naturalist and you don't believe there's anything supernatural, you don't believe in miracles for sure. You may not believe in God either. All right, so I'm going to review a little bit from, this is actually from what David did and also from what Eric did. If you weren't here for Eric's, uh, it dovetails really nicely with naturalism. And uh, I thought he did an awesome job. He didn't feel like he did, but I thought he did great. So uh, your worldview is like eyeglasses through which you view and interpret external reality and your experiences. It's sort of your presuppositions. It's sort of like the foundation of how you think about things. It seeks to answer the big questions of life. With this series, one of the things that keeps coming up is, are we asking these questions? Are we too distracted? Do we spend the time to answer these? Do we think it's important to answer these questions? Um, and it contains a mountain of often unconscious assumptions upon which your conclusions are based. So I think it's true that if we aren't asking these questions, a lot of us have beliefs and we act in ways that represent things that we may not have even thought through. So we may have just inherited the way that we think about things. And what I would argue is, is that if we don't teach these things to kids and teenagers and to ourselves who then teach these to our kids, we're gonna let culture kind of win that battle in terms of how we think about things. All right, so here are the four, uh, sorry, five central worldview questions. We'll go through each of these in turn and we'll talk about each one. Origin, where did reality and self come from? Meaning, what is the purpose of existence? Identity, who am I? Morality, what is right and wrong? And destiny, what will happen to me after death? And so these are five of the most important questions about a worldview, and I think it's important to look at each worldview. We've looked at Christianity, we looked at nihilism, and now we're gonna look at naturalism and see, do they have good answers for these questions? And so uh, the test of an answer to worldview questions should be threefold. The first is, is it true? So does your answer conform to what we know about reality? Is it good? Does the answer satisfy the question? And is it beautiful? Is the answer fulfilling? Obviously, all three of these have some level of subjectivity to them. Obviously, beautiful, totally subjective. So someone who's a naturalist, we'll talk about Carl Sagan a little bit later. He finds beauty in the cosmos and the idea that that's all there is. I find absurdity in that, okay? All right, so here is kind of what we're looking at. Again, we've done Christian theism, nihilism, we're doing naturalism today, postmodernism, and then I know Alan's doing Islamic theism in a couple weeks. All right, so specifically of naturalism, here's sort of our like, little definition that it's the view that the natural world is all that there is and that we should uh, only believe what can be scientifically proven, okay? So basically, there is no supernatural, sort of what you see is what you get. Uh, scientism is a guy that's done science a lot. I'm not like a researcher, I'm not in that world anymore. Know Austin's in that world and there's some others that are and you're in that world if you do pacemakers and things like that 
you start to feel that the deeper you go into schooling that's scientific, the more people believe in it and kind of have a faith in it. And so it's like if I see something about an essential oil, like I'm automatically like no, because um, it's not really scientific. Um, but what you also find, the more that you get and the deeper you get into science, and I'm not saying I'm wrong about essential oils. I saw a look on the pharmacist's face, or like, that's how you should feel. Um, I think the deeper I get into science, too, I also start to appreciate that science isn't, you know, it's not bulletproof. You know, you look at a lot of research studies, and it's like a sample of 14, and they make these really big conclusions, and it's like, well, I don't know. And so there's only so much power to science. There's certainly limits to science. Science can only test what is in the present, and there's always multiple variables that can throw things off. So uh, I think that truth that comes from science should not be elevated, but in the mind of someone who's in science, and certainly someone who's a naturalist, someone who's a scientist, uh, it's definitely elevated, and I think more than it should be. All right, so this is something that's called what you see is what you get. And in a general sense, this is sort of what a naturalist is. So this little uh, acronym, they call it WYSIWYG, which I think is funny. We won't talk about it too much, but I like WYSIWYG. Okay, so what you see is what you get, and that's the basic idea of naturalism. So if I can see it, I can feel it, I can touch it, I can smell it, it's real, and that's all that there is, okay? There's a few different names sort of for that. The first one is naturalism. So these are academic names for this sort of WYSIWYG thing, this what you see is what you get. There's different ver versions of it. The idea that nature is all there is is naturalism. Materialism is similar. It's a belief that the material world is all there is. And then we've got atheism and agnosticism. I want to talk about those because I think those are probably more popular ways that people would kind of talk about their worldview. I don't think most people lead with, I'm a naturalist or I'm a materialist, even though it's probably true. But a lot of people now lead with that they're an atheist or they're agnostic. And I think they're sort of connected. So an atheist is obviously someone who believes that there is no God. An agnostic is someone who's not sure. Um, I think that Atheism requires a certain level of faith. And so I think what you'll find among most scientists who are truly naturalists is that they'd probably say they're agnostic, even though I think their conclusions being naturalists would make them actually atheists. I think they would say that there's no God. But like Carl Sagan, again, he would say he's an agnostic, even though he would also say that the cosmos is all there is. So if you're saying that, you're saying there's no God, but maybe you don't want to label yourself as an atheist because how could you know? And so it's easy to say, you know, to kind of feel like, well, I don't think there's a God, but I also can't prove that there's not, so I'm just going to say I don't know. What you're really saying is you don't really care. And also what an agnostic is saying from day to day is what you see is what you get. And that's kind of the grounds by which that they make decisions. All right. And so again, we'll go through these questions one at a time. And we'll start with this idea of origin. So where did reality and the self come from? So what naturalism would say is that the cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. And I realize some of these terms, myself included, are kind of weird and not something that I'm used to. And so you've got two options. You've got sort of in Christianity, you've got God, and then you've got us, okay, and the world. And so this would be an open system. God can interact and we can interact with God, okay? in a closed system, let me do this, you would have us, the world, if there were such a thing as God, he would be in here, Jesus would be in here, okay? And so inside a closed system, it can only interact in this way. And so it limits God, it limits God's ability to be sovereign, to be all-powerful, um, it limits anything supernatural. So in the open system, 
what we'd have in Christianity, there's something that could exist outside of our system, outside of our universe, okay? Uh, now, there's, there's problems that come in, and we'll talk about them here with a closed system. It means that all there is is all that exists in here that we can see, we can touch, we can feel, okay? And that's sort of their idea for origin. Um, it's a similar to deism. If you remember, like, I think of, like, our founding fathers were mostly deists. They talk about this idea that, that God created a clock. He was a great clockmaker. He created this clock, this intricate thing, this complex system. He kind of put it into motion, and he walked away from it. And so that's why we feel that God is quiet today is because, well, he made the clock. You know, we, we couldn't have had this clock without him, but he's gone now. And so a naturalist would think sort of similarly to that. Either a naturalist would agree with that kind of clockmaker concept or a naturalist would say, well, I like the idea, but really existence is much more complex than a clock, and so that can't really explain it. But that's how they would think of the cosmos or the order of our universe. Um, and so in a scenario like this, God or gods or angels or demons or the dead uh, or anything like that can exist. Okay, so nothing supernatural can exist. All right. And I guess I would say this, that even if like a, a true materialist or true naturalist saw a miracle, something they couldn't explain, they would have to find an explanation for what happened. And so you've probably heard like, you know, the, uh, the miracles from, from uh, Moses, you know, there's like a scientific explanation for each one of them. Well, how did the firstborn die? Well, there was this disease or, you know, and it was caused by the flies that came and the, the blood, you know, the water turned to blood, but it was because this, uh, you know, iron containing crustacean was there. You know, there's like, there's scientific explanations that a naturalist would give for all those miracles. So they would say, well, these things happened and people thought they were miracles, but actually they were just natural scientific occurrences, okay? So you kind of take the magic out of it and take the supernatural out. All right, so is this explanation true? I guess I would say no, because I do believe in miracles. <clears throat> and so the question would be, well, how do you explain miracles? Uh, if we live in a closed system that came into existence at some finite point in the past, then what is the scientific explanation? So we, we talked about this as well, is, is that we feel like there's good proof that our universe came into existence. And so uh, let's say about 100 years ago and everything before that, uh, most big thinkers and philosophers thought that the universe was past eternal, so it's infinite. And so in that scenario, you wouldn't necessarily need a God to put it into motion. But now we believe that the universe existed, or uh, sorry, started to exist, or came into existence. If we believe that, and you have a closed system, then what was there before to put it into existence? I'm not saying that extremely well. Um, but the idea is, is that if all there is is matter, what put that into motion? And so that is one of the hardest questions for a naturalist is, if this is all there is, then what started it? Because it did come into existence. We do believe that. We believe in the Big Bang, scientifically. Um, so what caused that? Um, is it good? Uh, well, no. I would say that if, if God doesn't exist or he exists in a closed system, then he isn't God. He's not sovereign. He's not all-powerful. Um, the biblical resurrection, if there's no supernatural, and it was just that God, had, you know, Jesus had fallen asleep and then he came back or that the disciples lied about it or whatever, if it's just that Jesus never actually existed and this is some literary device to talk about how we should uh, you know, rise above injustice, then uh, it loses its power. And so for me, it's not a good answer. It doesn't speak to uh, the Bible. And this is something, we've talked about this before, that increasingly Christians and even preachers and ministers uh, believe that the biblical account of the resurrection is just a literary thing, that it's not a literal thing, that there is no supernatural. 
And so if you do take on the tenets of naturalism, that this is all there is, that it's just the material world, that there is no supernatural, um, that, you, that you give into science more than you give into the scriptures, uh, that's a problem. And I think it's a real problem. I think we need to own that and accept that. You can't really live in both worlds because it's either one or the other. And I'll be honest, as a person that loves science, it's hard to hold to what I feel is true in both camps, okay? And so I think there are ways, and I don't think it's one or the other, but I think you have to be careful. I think we have to guard against that kind of theology. I think it's really easy to kind of keep getting more and more steps away from traditional theology, and you end up in a place where Jesus wasn't supernatural, he didn't actually resurrect, and then what do we really have? All right, then the question of, is it beautiful? I guess, and this is a little bit esoteric, but I would say, is beauty even really possible if we live in a reality that's just cause and effect? So there is a thing called determinism, and it's the idea that um, each action and each thing that happens was determined by a previous action. So if it's just cause and effect, what really is beauty? So you think about like a robot, how could a robot feel beauty or even um, have a sense for beauty if it's just a robot? Um, this gets a little bit more complicated than I want to get into. Um, but if you don't have free will, how are you even deciding that something is beautiful or something that is valuable? Or how could you even judge art to be something that's special if it's just cause and effect? I don't know if that makes sense. But I would say no to that. So we'll do a Bible verse for each one too. And so on origin, there's a lot of verses obviously that speak to origin of our universe and God's hand in that. Genesis 1-1 being one of them. But I like this one from Proverbs. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. <clears throat> All right, so I love this on cause and effect. Uh, this is some German kid or something I read that came up with this. Uh, we're trying to get Charlie to play piano, and this is kind of what he thinks about playing piano. Maybe he's not wrong. I don't know. But I love it when he plays piano. All right, so uh, we'll get into this. Like I said, I know this is dense stuff, but uh, meaning. So what is the purpose of existence? I think this is maybe one of the more interesting ones. Uh, naturalists would say that history is a linear stream of events linked by cause and effect, but without an overarching purpose. Core commitments, or the things that we do because we feel like they're right or wrong, uh, are adopted unwittingly or chosen by individuals. All right, so is this true? Well, naturalism provides no rational justification to act selflessly, but naturalists often choose to promote universal love and the welfare of the species. Meaning that is grounded in the temporal is subjective and without ultimate meaning. So what I would say is, is that are there good people who are atheists? Are there good people who are naturalists? The answer, of course, is sure. I and mean, there's people that do good things. I would say that we're all... Uh, you know, evil in our way, we all sin, but are the people that, get, do, that do good things, that choose to do good things? Is Bill Gates an atheist who does a lot of great stuff? Well, sure. Um, well, why does he do that? That becomes a deeper conversation. Well, does he do it because it makes his life better? Well, sure, in some ways it does, but could his life be better if he didn't do those things? Well, in some ways, yes. And so you basically, as a naturalist or as an atheist, you have to take on kind of illusory uh, moral principles to, to live by those. Um, all right, so is it good? Naturalists can create illusory purposes, but life seems to mean much more. I would say that it would seem silly that if all that there was meaning about life was just something that we created or something that we create so that we can enjoy our lives more, it seems to me that life has something more to it than just that. I think there is true meaning, and that is certainly a feeling thing, but I don't feel like it's a good answer to say that it's just created 
or that, uh, that morality is just some sort of social construct. It just doesn't seem to be true. I think there's more to morality than that. Uh, and then is, is it beautiful? We've talked about this when we talked about um, how life is meaningless if there is no God, if there is no life after death. And uh, I would say that if naturalism is true, then life is absurd. And what you'll see is, is in people um, who, like Nietzsche or Bertrand Russell, or guys that really understand atheism, the end result of that, the logical conclusion of there being no God, is actually a really scary thing. And so uh, in, in Nietzsche, I can't think of the name of the writing, but where he famously says, God is dead, and he sort of says, God is dead, God is dead. Is he dead? And if he is, I'm scared, or something along those lines. Um, the conclusion of God being dead is not an empowering one. It's actually a really scary one. And so if God is dead, certainly that's not a, a beautiful answer. That's a really scary answer, and it leaves life being pretty absurd. So the idea that we would go through life, that we'd do all these things, that I'd be nice to Grant, that I would ask Grant about his kids if life is going to end in the grave and it won't matter, and that your kids are really no different than those dinosaur toys over there. They're just stardust. Just saying. Um, then what's, what's the point? So life does become extremely absurd. And that's where it leads to nihilism in that way, that nothing matters if all there is is this. If I'm no different than that chair, then what's the point? I would certainly say objectively that that's not a beautiful answer. It doesn't speak to the beauty that I see in existence and I feel. All right, so Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so I think when we're talking about purpose, uh, I think biblically there's certainly a much deeper and more beautiful answer. All right, so this is Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous atheist right now. He even kind of gives into this, and this is... Uh, this is something that they would admit. They would say, yeah, there's some issues with the way that I think and the way that I act if I follow logically what I believe. Uh, much as we might wish to believe otherwise, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. So to whatever degree you understand evolution, the basic idea of evolution is, is that we as a species, we do things and we select for things that increase our survivability, okay? And I'll try and explain this. There's a, an idea by Alvin Platinga, who's a famous Christian philosopher, that you, you can't really have a strong adherence to evolution and naturalism, because evolution says that all that matters is survivability. It would stand to reason that over time, the things that we've done to help us survive wouldn't necessarily be true. And so an, an example would be that if you're camping and you're scared of a bear, you could tell yourself that any sort of thing could, could cause that bear to scare you. And they don't necessarily have to be true things, but if they help you survive, those things that could be passed down. And so basically the idea is, is that our rationale or our reason is not necessarily something that we should be able to trust, because really what's driven us to be able to survive through evolution is what has helped us survive. And so the point that he makes is, is that that the product of, of evolution, and, and even Darwin said this of monkeys, how can we trust the mind of a monkey? And that's really what we are. Um, we can't really trust our reason to the extent that it would allow us to confirm that this is all that there is. I know I'm not explaining that well, <laughs> but I would say this, is that uh, they're sort of in conflict, okay? And so uh, you can't really believe evolution and naturalism, they don't really necessarily match up exactly. All right, and I would also say this along, Dar along what uh, Dawkins said, is, is that it's impossible to live consistently and happily with a naturalistic worldview. I'd say the same of an atheistic worldview, is, is that if you're consistent, you would say that if there is no God, 
um, then I have to create purpose. I have to create meaning to find happiness. And so you can live inconsistently as an atheist and be happy, but you can't live consistently and be happy. Because if you live consistently, then life is pretty meaningless and it's pretty absurd. All right, and we've talked about this before. This is uh, this idea of the two-story universe, and this is from Francis Schaeffer. And basically the idea is, is that in the bottom story, or the first story, this is the secular world. This is a world without God. Um, as we've already said, life here is absurd. Um, and then in the upper story, we have the supernatural. We have God, we have angels, we have true meaning, value, and purpose. Living in this first story, and if you're a naturalist, you say there is no second story, it's pretty depressing. Um, but we, as naturalists, we, we sort of reach up into the second story to find our meaning, value, and purpose. But it's not logically coherent. So again, you can't be an atheist and live consistently and happily. You have to be inconsistent. And so you sort of jump up in the sex, second story to kind of grab meaning, value, and purpose, even though you don't deserve to. And then I like this kind of idea. And so where we see you know, things that point to the existence of God or that point to the existence of the supernatural, even just simply in like the order of the world, you look at the beauty of the diversity of organisms and just the extent of it. I mean, the fact that we live on Earth and that is the most minuscule of things in our universe, and that you would say, oh, that probably just happened by chance. This probably just kind of came into existence 13 billion years ago, and here we are. Um, it's kind of crazy and it requires you to sort of turn your brain off in some sense. All right, so Groundhog Day. Who's seen Groundhog Day? <laughs> I love Groundhog Day. It's a great movie. Um, so I, I think it kind of makes some sense. So if you've not seen Groundhog Day, it's basically the idea that Bill Murray's character, he's a crotchety dude, he's a reporter, he's going to, uh, what's Punxsutawney? Is that the name of the city? Uh, to watch the groundhog, whether he you know, sees a shadow or not. And he ends up having to repeat the same day over and over and over. Okay, you've seen that. Um, this is a review from some random guy about this movie. I was looking at movies that kind of tie into philosophy. And this is what he says. I think this is like a perfect picture of what a naturalist would think or an atheist would think. Life comes with a purpose, survival. So again, that's evolution. That's the purpose of your life is, is to survive and pass your genes on to uh, your progeny. All right, so, but birth doesn't come with a meaning. Only monotony. We wake, work, go out, sleep, repeat. It's an infinite time loop with alterations to the cycle if ostensibly, meaning, and we think it is, you know. To break it requires self-actualization, discovering yourself and your place in the world and leaving a legacy when you die. All means leaving, uh, living with a true meaning as we are born to die unless we grow to live. So I don't agree with this, but I do think this is sort of like the created meaning or purpose that, a, that an a atheist or a naturalist would have to come up with. Um, and I think it's pretty sad, but I think that if you really take naturalism to its logical conclusion, this is sort of what you're left with. You're left with really nothing that different from Groundhog Day. The idea that for, unless he ended up kissing, you know, Andy McDowell's character, that he would have been in this time loop for thousands and thousands of years. And that's sort of life, although it wouldn't be thousands of years, it'd be like 84 years, and then you die. Um, and at the end of that, it's all over. And what did it really matter, and how was it really any different? Another movie that kind of gets at that is like The Truman Show. It's just the idea that it's all sort of an illusion. It's all sort of like actors, and is this real or is it not? But if this is all there is, what does it really matter anyway? All right, 
So on to identity. So this is the idea and the question of who am I? Really important question. Um, naturalism would say that human beings are complex machines. Okay, sort of like that clockwork idea. We're just complex machines. We're just a combination of matter and different variations that make us slightly different than monkeys and in a sense slightly different from that, from that chair over there. Okay, we're all just matter. We're all just stardust. So personality is an interrelation of chemical and physical properties that we do not yet fully understand. Okay, exciting stuff. Some of this goes back. Um, did anyone study philosophy in college? Anybody? I certainly did not. Kind of wish I could go back and do it now, but uh, Rene Descartes, you've probably heard of him. He was a 17th century, he was a French philosopher, also a mathematician and scientist. He famously believed that humans were part machine and part mind, and so he separated the two. Uh, before him and before uh, kind of this enlightenment period, people thought of those things as one thing. So you were a human, you had a soul, but he sort of separated the two. And he said, well, I think the mind and the human are different. And that can open up all sorts of conversations. Um, what naturalists did is Descartes sort of separated the mind and the person. Naturalists brought them back together, okay? And what they did by bringing them together is they said, well, the mind or the spirit or the soul that we've, we've kind of treated as special and as different is actually not that different at all and it's not that special at all. And so most naturalists would say that the mind and the, uh, the person are not a separate thing. And there's actually a guy, Pierre Cab Cabanus, uh, from 1800, he put it more crudely, he said the brain secretes thought as the liver secretes bile. Um, and so then you kind of come into this idea in the early 19th century that that the mind and the thoughts of the mind and dreams and everything that we, we sort of give value to, that they're really just like a liver secreting bile. It's just nothing. It's just sort of neurons firing in a certain way. And that's, you know, that's kind of the human experience, um, which again is pretty depressing. All right, so is this true? Are humans just complex machines? Well, um, if humans are just complex machines made up of matter like all animals, plants, and objects, then why are we so unique? Even a naturalist would say that humans are unique. There's something about us that makes us different. I think we would all know that. You stand me next to a dog and there's something different. Some of you might prefer the dog, but um, <clears throat> there's obviously something unique about us. Uh, we alone are capable of conceptual thought, complex speech, culture, and moral capacity. The question for me is why? Is if we're all stardust, we're all something that originated from a singularity and kind of blew out and then ended up the earth and then everything evolved from a little organism to me right now standing here. Uh, why am I any more special than that chair, this floor, or those ceiling tiles? Uh, what, why, and, and not even so much why, obviously I am different than a ceiling tile, then why? And does that not speak to something more than us just being random machines? I think so. Um, and I think what's interesting for a naturalist is that they, if they kind of follow the logical conclusion, they have to say that humans aren't special. Uh, but most don't want to say that because they know it's not true. They don't feel that it's true. And so a true naturalist, and I've seen this like on little memes or people that, things that people will share that are <coughs> kind of outspoken atheists is this idea that, you know, they'll show like nature and they'll say like, uh, this leaf is the same as me or something. You know, like there, there's a beauty in that. And there's, uh, you know, the idea that I'm made of the same matter as some star that's, you know, billions of light years away, that there's some sort of beauty or something special to that. Um, or that we're all the same because we're all made up of the same matter. We'd say we're all the same because we all have the image of God. And so it's sort of a different and contrasting approach <coughs> to why we're valuable. But I would say that if all that we are is just matter, that you can't make an argument that we're objectively valuable or that I should care whether you're healthy or not. It, 
actually, in fact, if it's based on evolution, I'd rather you not be healthy and that I would be healthy, you know, so I, it, it doesn't really follow. <coughs> All right, so good. Is this a good answer that we're just machines? Uh, my answer to that would be if we're just machines that act as a result of chemical cause and effect, then there is no such thing as good and bad, truly, like objectively, there's no morality. Um, and then there'd be this question of, are we even responsible for our wrongdoing? If it's just cause and effect, if it's just chemicals kind of firing off, then how can we even say that there's free will? And most naturalists would say that free, free will is mostly an illusion. It's something that we create, that we're actually not making decisions on our own, which is something I would disagree with. This is this idea of determinism. It's the doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. <coughs> and some naturalists would agree with this, some would not. All right, so beautiful, does life as a robot sound fulfilling and beautiful to you? Would be my question. And I think free will is something that is <coughs> evident at the very beginning of the Bible. Even in Genesis 2, God told him, you can eat from any tree in the garden. So we got in a lot of trouble because we had free will. And certainly there's even Christian beliefs, um, Calvinism as an example, that would say that we don't really have free will, that, that God is sort of acting, that we're, in a sense, kind of, robots. And so I think in that theological system, it's not all that different from naturalism. But to me, that's not beautiful. I think what's beautiful is that we do have free will, that God chose not to create a clock, but he chose to create a world where there was potential for evil. There's potential that we would choose the wrong thing, um, but that he also created a world where the greatest number of people could freely choose him and choose to glorify him. I think there's beauty in that. Certainly much more than us just being complex machines in a system where we don't even make our own decisions. And it sort of reminds me of this. This is The Matrix. You probably remember this creepy scene where he wakes up. And if you've not seen The Matrix, you've had so many years to see it, and so you should have already seen it. But um, you've had 20 years, basically. Um, but he wakes up, spoiler alert, um, everything he knows is reality is just a computer program, effectively, and <coughs> that uh, robots are using us as sort of batteries, basically. Okay. And this is kind of this idea, is, is that our mind is separated from our body, um, or that reality is just sort of an illusion. Okay? To me, not a beautiful answer. All right, and then into morality. What is right and what is wrong? Uh, values are constructed by human beings. Being good is advantageous, so we, we're good uh, because it's, it's an advantage to us. And so from an evolutionary standpoint, we've created what's good and bad because when we do good things, it's good for us. When we do bad things, it's bad for us. Okay, so is that true? <coughs> Sorry, guys. Um, I would say that values and ethics, I would offer this, they do differ from culture to culture. I think that's true. And so I think while I feel like there's objective morality, I think there's some things that deep down in us, we always know that they're wrong. You can't argue that certain cultures have done things that, that vary. There are cultures that are cannibalistic. I would think that objectively that eating people is wrong. Um, but I, I do think if I'm going to give something to the naturalist, I would say, well, there are some social things that are pretty messed up that people begin to think are okay. <coughs> um, but without God, morality is subjective. And I would also say being good is not always advantageous. It's not always advantageous to be good. We sort of talked about that earlier. Um, is it good? Is it a good answer? Let's say if morality is man-made, you can't even say with authority that the Holocaust or genocide are wrong, which is a problem, I think. Morality becomes relative, which we'll talk about with postmodernism in a while. I would even say that when you look at things like animal rights, environmentalism, even women's rights, 
When we see a lion killing a zebra, we don't say, well, that's murder. Uh, we know that it's not, or that's the way we think about it. Um, he's just killing, he's just eating it. When a seagull steals a fish from a seagull, it's not stealing, he's just grabbing it, he's just trying to get food. Um, <coughs> and I think you do see this among atheists now, is, is that, I think because they start to understand the way that they think, is, is that animals are as valuable as humans. But I think deep within me, if you were to tell me that a dog is as valuable as a human, we saw this with this Harambee thing where the kid falls in the little ape pit, or the gorilla pit, and they shoot the gorilla, and there's people that are upset that they shot a gorilla to save the life of a human. And I think that's incredibly messed up, but I think it fits with a naturalist way of thinking that what is different between this gorilla and this human, and in fact, people start to think, well, I think the gorilla is actually more valuable than the human in ways. Um, same thing with environmentalism. I think environmentalism in its basic sense is, is not a bad thing. I think it's good to protect our environment and leave it for ages to come. But the point at which we elevate it above humans, it's kind of messed up. But if we believe this way, then we should elevate it. I'd even say <coughs> women's rights doesn't make a lot of sense from an evolutionary standpoint. If, if women don't hear this the wrong way, please. But from a physical standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, purely, biologically, Women are a weaker species physically. Okay, don't mean mentally. I don't mean that in a grand sense. Okay, I think we're gonna, you know, probably in a UFC fight, a, a man, the strongest man is gonna probably beat the strongest one. Okay. Um, uh, there are a lot of things that are wrong with men. Okay. Um, so then it should follow then evolutionarily or from a naturalistic standpoint that women should be seen as secondary. And of course we don't feel that way because as Christians we feel like, well, we're all made in the image of God, male and female in that same way. Um, so there's been a lot of reasons why historically the church has been wrong on that issue, but certainly if you, if you take evolution to its logical uh, conclusion, then women's rights doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so again, you're sort of choosing culturally to create this idea that doesn't make a lot of sense with your worldview. Okay. Um, is it beautiful? Well, uh, we can learn moral truths by observing human nature and behavior. So naturalists would say that's how we, we learn what is true and what is, what is right. Um, but I would say not because humans have invented morality, but because we all have the image of God. So we all reflect the image of God, even if it's just slightly. There's all good that's in us. There's all conscience that's built into us. <coughs> um, some of us live that out and reflect that out more than others. All right, and then First Peter, a lot of verses obviously on the image of God, Genesis 3 and things like that. But First Peter 1.16, be holy because I am holy. This is a section from Leviticus. And so I think that's why we're moral is, is that God is moral, and God has set that standard, and we follow through on that. Okay, this is going to be hard to read, so I'll read it. I don't believe in ethics anymore. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means. Get what you can while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to. and Let others argue about whether it's right or not. Hey, why'd you do that? You're in my way. Now you're not. The ends justify the means. I didn't mean for everyone, you dolt, just me. Ah, anyway. All right, so destiny. Last little question here. What happens when we die? Uh, death is the extinction of personality and individuality. The cosmos is all there is, was, or ever will be. The last line is, is from uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, Thomas Nagel says it like this. Human destiny is an episode between two oblivions. Okay. And then according to the human, Humanist Manifesto, so humanism is sort of an extension of naturalism, but it's the idea that you know, we want to do good things for people, 
but that there is no God, effectively. And I think that most people these days are sort of variations of humanists. I think there's a lot of different worldviews that we ascribe to, but definitely we want to be good to other people, but the question of why is another one. Um, they, they would say that the only immor- immortality is to continue to exist in our progeny and the way that our lives have influenced others in culture. So this is the only way that we live beyond the grave is through our ancestors, our progeny, and through the way we influence culture. And so the idea would be live a good life, make things better, take care of the environment, <coughs> and that's a way that you can kind of live on forever in a sense. It's not a really beautiful answer in my mind. So is it true? Uh, if true, where did the cosmos come from? We already sort of talked about that. Um, what, what explanation is there to push that into uh, uh, its beginning? You can't create nothing from nothing. No one's ever seen that. So if this is a scientifically based you know, concept, then science certainly has never shown that something can come from nothing. Um, if there's no future beyond the grave, then what's the point in living? We've talked about that. Is this a good answer? I would say that our hearts long for something more, and from a Christian perspective, it's an extremely bad answer. It exalts the created over the creator. And then is it beautiful? Some like Carl Sagan, or people that kind of follow that, the idea of the cosmos um, and how beautiful it is, they would say that's a beautiful answer, that that's all there is. Um, but how can a random and purposeless universe really be beautiful? To me, it's no different than if you had a computer program that could spit out some random collection of words. How beautiful is that, really? And then also, then ultimately, why would it matter? Even if you thought it were beautiful, if it was all going to end and it had no purpose, why would it matter? So then 2 Corinthians, I love this verse. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so I think that with naturalism, we have people that are fixing their eyes (coughs) too much on what is seen, and in fact are saying that there is nothing that's unseen. So what you see is what you get, or WYSIWYG. And I, and I think that really stands in contrast to what the Bible would say. Again, this is Carl Sagan. If you don't know Carl Sagan, he had a show called The Cosmos, or Cosmos, rather, that was really popular in the 70s. Um, there's now a new version of that with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a really popular, I think he'd say he's an agnostic, but probably an atheist, definitely a naturalist, and uh, just sort of a pro-science, all-science kind of person. Um, I want to show this video to kind of give you an idea of sort of what he's about. It's just a minute. This is from the first episode of Cosmos. Cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stirs. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as of a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. The size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding. Lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home, the Earth. For the first time, we have the power to decide the fate of our planet and ourselves. This is a time of great danger, but our species is young and curious and brave. It shows much promise. In the last few millennia, we have made the most astonishing and unexpected discoveries about the cosmos and our place within it. I believe our future depends powerfully on how well we understand this cosmos in which we float 
like a moon of dust in the morning sky. All right, so two minutes that I'll wrap. Um, I guess the immediate thing I would say is it's kind of creepy, um, but this is a guy that a lot of kind of naturalist atheists hold up in really high regard. So I feel like I always pick on these people, um, but I feel like when you dive in, it's it's a little odd. I mean, there's some beauty in the way he says things. He's also a little creepy. Kind of reminds me of like a like a TV preacher or something. But um, I guess my like response is: Is this the best that we can offer? That there is value. It says that you know our future depends on our understanding of the cosmos, and that even though we're just a speck of dust, effectively that there's some value in us understanding the cosmos more. I would say that if all we are is a speck of dust floating you know, through, for, through this cosmos or through this universe, why would it matter that we understand it better? Like, What, what difference would that possibly make? Um, and so here's a, a little bit of a long quote I'm going to read and then I'll wrap. It's from Lauren Isley, and it's this idea of man being a cosmic orphan. And I think this is a result of naturalism, the way that we thought and uh, the enlightenment and so on and so forth. Man is the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. Who am I, man asks. Why am I here? Where am I going? Ever since the Enlightenment, when modern man threw off the shackles of religion, he's tried to answer those questions without reference to God, but the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that in throwing off God, he had freed himself from all that stifled and repressed him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had only succeeded in orphaning himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes ultimately absurd. It is without ultimate meaning, without ultimate value, without ultimate purpose. And the point of all this is I see this happening over and over. I see this more and more with young people. The polls would, would, would definitely verify that, that we feel like we don't need God. We feel like we've reached a point where Science can explain everything that we used to answer with God or with miracles. We don't need them, but actually the end result of that is that we find ourselves as an orphan in this cosmos. It's a pretty lonely place to be. And so I like this verse from Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So my hope for people, for you and for other people in this world, is, is that they find that, that they're enlightened not by ideas of naturalism or of modern science, but they're enlightened by ideas that God has shared with us, that he's revealed to us, and truths that have existed long before we were here and that will exist long after we're here. Um, and I think that Christianity is the only world where we can live consistently and that the five answers that it gives to all these questions, we can live consistently and happily. And I think it's important that based on that information, based on knowing that, it should be something that we want to share with other people, and I pray that we all do. Okay, so, I know it was a deep one, sorry I'm sick. Um, there's a concert tonight, you should come, so I'll be doing that at six o'clock, it's gonna be inside. We have a fake campfire that we've ordered and we're building, um, so it'll be like it's a campfire setting. I'm gonna pray very quickly, and then we'll dismiss. God, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for your truths, for your uh, word, um, and God, for a universe that we get to live in, God, that we get to worship you in, and for the knowledge of you within this universe. God, we ask that we'd share this gospel and this good news with others uh, because, to be frank, people are pretty lost without it. Um, be with us this week. And it's in your son's name. Amen. Thanks. Thanks. Ooh. Okay, so I want to apologize. That was probably not my best version of that lesson. I'm not feeling great today, so I was coughing, sneezing. Uh, I had a tickle in my throat the whole time.
And I'd also say, I'm not a philosophy professor. <laughs> so this was a very difficult lesson to give. I said that in the introduction before I turned the podcast on, that uh, it was just tough. It's a hard one to teach. I don't feel like you know, I, I understand naturalism well enough to really speak to it on a, an extremely deep level. And so if certainly a naturalist is out there listening, they may take a lot of issue with this. And so to that degree, I apologize if I created a straw man of naturalism. I think I got to some of the definitely elements and foundation of it. And uh, I'd be happy to discuss more, to argue more. Um, I, you know, definitely teaching on Christianity, something I understand a little bit more as a worldview. I could do uh, maybe a better job. And in speaking with Eric last week when he taught on nihilism, this was sort of the same way he felt was, well, it's hard in 40 minutes to encapsulate in a, a worldview. It's also hard as someone who, you know, it certainly is a, is a science major for me, I'm pretty aware of naturalism and its effects and the way that people who value science over all else think. But at the same time, on a philosophical level, we go to that level, that higher level, um, it's not you know, the easiest thing to have thought through all these issues. These are issues that people have thought through for hundreds and hundreds of years and they have developed you know, very strong arguments for and deep ways of thinking. Um, but I do guess on its basic level, there are some, some things that are definitely problematic about naturalism. Hopefully I've brought those to the surface and maybe allow you to think through those things. That if you're a Christian or a naturalist, I think it's helpful to at least think through these issues in the same way that there are issues that Christians should think through that could be problems for the way that we think um, about our worldview. So, we'll continue on. Next week we have postmodernism. Definitely an increasingly important and valuable topic to think through. And then the week after that we will talk about Islamic theism. So, uh, what that means. And so I'm looking forward to both of those. Hope you'll be there with us. If you're in the Memphis area, come join us. It's Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Highland Church of Christ. We'd love to have you. And I hope you have a fabulous week, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.